0: We set up our own label and we, we didn't wait for for somebody to, to come along and do it. And I think that's the thing that I would say that to try and be really proactive and do and start and just do it. And then people go, Oh, that's really good. What you're doing It's good. You're doing something. And then they kind of are impressed by that. And then, and then you just, you, you just build and you just gather, gather things that you've done and,
1: and then you just keep going with it. Welcome to the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast with Bree Noble. Hey, hey, this is Brie Noble, and you are tuned into the Female Entrepreneur Musician Podcast, where we talk about making great music, connecting with your audience, and growing your business. And on today's episode, I interview Rebecca Holweg from London, and there are several things I loved about interviewing her. First of all, I love her story where she talks about how she had a certain idea of what success as an artist would be like. And she had it kind of all playing like a movie in her head about how it was going to happen and it didn't work out that way. And she didn't let that deter her. She kept going and she's built a fantastic career over the years. She also talks about how she balances family and work and how she involves her young daughter, and how she didn't let that stop her when her daughter was really young. She still was able to figure out how to perform. I know that many of you have reached out to me and said, that you are just really stuck on how to keep performing or how to tour when you have young children. So I think that this will be very helpful for you because Rebecca Holweg did deal with the struggles of being a mom of a young child, and she kept going. And now she gets to enjoy having her 13-year-old daughter participate some in her shows. So I'll give you a little bit of background on Rebecca in a minute, but first I want to introduce you to our sponsor for this episode. This episode of The Female Entrepreneur Musician is brought to you in part by Muddy Paw PR. Through their highly personalized public relations campaigns for DIY artists, they've secured placements on Alternative Press, Substream, New Noise, and more, with their artists going on to play festivals like Warped Tour, So What, and gain licensing deals and regular rotation in stores like Starbucks and Hollister. Find out more at MuddyPawPR.com. Now, here's a little bit about Rebecca Holveg. Since 2001, British singer-songwriter Rebecca Holveg has released three albums and toured in Europe, Australia, and America. She has supported rock legends and appeared on many BBC national radio shows. All this from her kitchen table in South London and whilst hanging out with her 13-year-old daughter. Here is my interview with Rebecca Holveg. So that's a little bit about Rebecca Holvig. So Rebecca, is there anything that is a little bit more like unique, interesting, quirky, more personal about you that's not in your bio that you think our listeners need to know?
0: Well, I don't know if they need to know this, but I, I live <laughs> in the city. <laughs> I was born in the, in the city of London. And, but then when I was about nine, I went, uh, we moved to the countryside to the middle of nowhere. And then after university, I came back here. So I think I'm really a country girl living mm. in the city, so I, I, um, I, I love nature and I seek it out as much as I can in the city and I grow vegetables in the city and, and flowers and uh, things by the roadside even sometimes. Um, so that's kind of my, my personality, I would say.
1: I, I love would, that you're trying to recreate that in the city. Do you have like a yard that actually allows you to do that in London? have
0: got a little roof terrace where we live ah. and then I have a vegetable bed and a community garden. Um, and, and I also did do some gardening literally by the side of the road with, with a group of women from my daughter's primary school. We, we set up this roadside bed and, uh, yeah. So I just, any, any opportunity. I love I'm not that, very good at it, but I really like
1: it. I love that. So how did, tell us how you got started in music.
0: Well, as a child, I always played and sang, I played the violin and I did some basic piano and I used to play through chords, you know, Beatles songs and so on and worked out from that, that I could. Start writing songs when I was quite young. But then uh, I didn't go and do music full time. I had a proper job for five years after university where I studied French and German. And then I finally went and studied music full time at the Guildhall School of Music. And that's where I met my husband, Andy Hamill, who's a session bass player. And really, most of my colleagues come out of that connection of that time. And that's when I began to be a professional musician when I was 28. Mm.
1: Yeah. I noticed that you've done a lot with Jeb Loy Nichols, who I was actually familiar with. Did you meet him at the university?
0: Ah, oh, that's great that you know him. I, I didn't, um, meet him there. I met him because Andy was in a band with, with him for a while. Mm. And he came home one day and said, I've met this guy that you'd really like him. And we met him. We've just done lots of different collaborations. He's even done artwork for me because he's an artist as well. And, uh, it's, he's become a really important colleague and collaborator.
1: That's awesome. So after you left university, did you go straight into, you know, kind of performing and being a musician full-time?
0: I, d- I did. I had, a few, I had a few other jobs for a while. I d- was doing some kind of temping, if you call that same thing, mm. um, kind of being a receptionist and things, uh, just temp- temporary things. And I did some translating. I did some German to English translating. And then I just thought, I've just got to go for this. And then the first jobs I had were were kind of bread and butter type music jobs, um, singing in restaurants and hotel lobbies, big posh hotels, singing lots of jazz, actually, because I'd studied jazz. So then I did start to make money from that straight away, um, because you can make more money from playing jazz in London anyway than you can from doing original
1: music. Interesting. So jazz, I didn't know jazz was a big... Thing in London, and that a lot of people, you know, a lot of hotels and things had that in their lobbies. Yeah,
0: they do. They they mostly have a piano, and they they do have music ongoingly at various different points during the week, and in dining rooms, and and I don't do that nowadays, but I have the impression that it still continues, and it's 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 people who've either done it for years, or it's a new generation of people who are doing it.
1: Well, it's nice that there are those jobs that. Can help people like you were when you were getting started, you know, actually make money from music and do what they love. And then you can expand into the singer songwriter career like you did. Exactly. Exactly. No, it
0: is good. It is a good thing. And it was just really when friends started saying, oh, you should put in some of your own songs. And then people gave me feedback that they liked. Um, when I started to do more jazz clubs, mm-hmm. I was doing jazz standard material and, and, and classic songs by other people and James Taylor and Carol King and all of those wonderful things. And then I started dropping in a few of my own things and people said, oh, we really like those. So then I kind of, the balance shifted, but I still do some songs by other people. And in fact, I've just recorded a whole load of stuff by other people, which I'm going to release on iTunes during the year.
1: Ooh, that's exciting. I love, I love unique versions of covers. For years, I had a a show on my radio station that was called We've Got It Covered. And it was like this covers like unique versions of covers from all kinds of genres and, and you know, eras.
0: Brilliant. That's a, such a great idea. I mean, that is so interesting, isn't it? How a song can sound so different.
1: Oh my gosh. I'll Yeah. It, There's so it. many it's songs. Great. I was just like, I can't even believe this is the same song. And I love this version <laughs> just as much as the other one, if not more. But it's a completely different animal, you know, when mm-hmm. someone else redoes it.
0: Yeah, and it's you know, if it's a a song done by a man and then it's done by a woman, it's very different and the other way around.
1: Absolutely. So, at this point, do you consider yourself a full time musician or are you you know doing some other things, maybe whether it's related to music or not, other kind of side jobs besides your singer songwriter main role?
0: I am doing these days, I have three days a week when I do teaching, I do teaching singing. One, it's all one to one or one to two, singing and beginner violin, piano, and guitar. So I do that in a couple of schools, and because I have a thirteen-year-old daughter, it just works out really well. Mm. I'm home when she's home, and um, I leave after she's left, and uh, it's it's just really works out well for me. And I've been doing that for a few years, just a handful of years now.
1: That's awesome. And so, how much time do you think you spend? on the actual, you know, writing songs, performing and stuff for your own music?
0: It varies so much. I get little clusters of things or I might go away for a few days and do some gigs somewhere, maybe in another country. Or um, it it really, really varies. It's impossible to say. And I have Mm. to say that writing I do sporadically in a kind of burst. And then I go for a long time without writing anything, Mm. unless someone's kind of asked me to write some lyrics or, or work on something with their project. So I have a burst of stuff and then I kind of do do an album or I gradually slowly gather it. But I'm not one of these people, sadly. I mean, Jeb Loy Nichols is very prolific. I'm not like him. I wish I (laughs)
1: were. I think we probably all wish that, but life gets in the way sometimes, right? It's true. It certainly does. So we have a lot of listeners that are kind of that, you know, beginner stage, uh, struggling musicians, and I'd love to hear a story from you of a time where you felt like, oh my gosh, like this isn't working. I feel like I'm hitting a wall. Maybe I should just give up. And then why you decided to push through that and and what happened as a result of that?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question. And I was had a lot of different ideas, but the thing that I think I would like to say to people is that. Is, is, is this that when um, it was in the year 2000, I think, and just before that I was kind of doing rounds of record company meetings and I was managing to get some meetings um, often just by in those days ringing up and just saying, I think, that, uh, you know, you might be interested in what I'm doing and just kind of brazing it out. And um, I, was, I had some meetings which were very frustrating because I had a meeting with Joni Mitchell's record company in this country and they said, "Oh, you know, it's interesting what you've got." But it, it turned out that they, the person really couldn't do anything to help me, and kind of let me think they could for a while. And mm. so it was very frustrating. And but during that time as well, I through a family friend, I got an introduction to a very nice family-run publishing company, and I did have a publishing deal with them for for just under a year. But during that time, we we you know we were waiting for something to happen, for someone to come along and say great we want to give you a record deal we want to cover one of the songs and that was the aim of the publishing deal and everyone was so incredibly nice and supportive but it just wasn't happening and i think we had this kind of moment when in 2000 we went to new york actually for a kind of holiday and go and see lots of gigs and and we we also went to have a meeting with the lawyer of the publishing company and he his car had been stolen and in the car was my my demo cd that i'd made um So he said, I haven't, he was quite upset because his car had just been stolen. He said, I haven't been able to listen to your music because this car got stolen. And anyway, there's no record deal for anyone these days. It's all bubblegum music. And even people like Roberta Flack can't get a record deal. And we were in this incredible, I think it was Fifth Avenue we in this amazing office block. And we thought, hey, we're going to have this big meeting. And it was just so negative, the whole thing. And we, cu- we, we spent the rest of the week going to see gigs and meeting amazing musicians, some of whom became really good friends of ours. And we just thought, let's just do this ourselves. And it was quite a lot to do with my husband, who had played on so many other people's records. He just said, look, we've got something good and I think we should just do it. So we, we left at the end of the publishing deal, which was quite a short deal anyway. I could have stayed. I could still be waiting for a record company to Ugh. buy me, but we just, set up our own little cottage industry in, in London. Um, we set up our own label and we, we didn't wait for, for somebody to, to come along and do it. And I think that's the thing that I would say that to try and be really proactive and do and start and just do it. And then people go, oh, that's really good what you're doing. It's good you're doing something. And then they kind of are impressed by that. And then, and then you, just, you, you just build and you just gather s- gather things that you've done and and then you just keep going with it. And that's what I would say, just to not wait. Not wait for someone else to come and do it for you.
1: Yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to have you on this show. Cause when you told me, you know, what you'd done and what you'd been doing, I'm like, that is the kind of artist I want to inspire. People that aren't going to sit around and wait. People that are willing to build this from the grassroots and and take a chance and and it's true, like so many artists just waste so much time waiting around for somebody to swoop in and, and give them that deal and it's true like nowadays so what year was this when you had that meeting
0: i think it was in 2000 and then in 2001 we released the first mm. um, but we we had quite a lot of recordings because we already had these demo recordings and then we just we just um we kind of, we did sort of take some of that material, I think some of the recording material and then revocal it. And then we did some new arrangements. And so it, it was, we sort of had a, we would kind of nearly done it, but, but it wasn't. So that still exists as the first CD that I did. And then we did a proper release. We got a distribution deal with a really nice company that I was with for 15 years that, that only distributes physical CDs, not digital. So they, they, Distributed my my three albums, and that was a really nice relationship. The publishing company was also a really nice relationship. But I just thought that that I would waste my life just waiting, for, in case something
1: happened. Yeah, you probably would have. <laughs> so I'm glad you didn't. um Because then I wouldn't have your music to play on my show in a couple. Or actually, it'll be in the past once we release this interview. But I mean, yeah. just fantastic music that needed right. to get out into the world and. Um, It's funny because that, you know, that happened in 2000. And when you think about now it's 2018 and there are definitely not many record deals to be had. And they were already saying that back in 2000. So I'm glad that you saw the writing on the wall, even as it was happening, moving into the digital age.
0: It was the beginning of that time, wasn't it? It was the beginning of people starting to do their own thing. And I think I had an advantage in being married to a session musician who Mm. had played on lots of people's records. He'd also... He'd played a lot of records of people who were the next big thing for the big record companies. And then they had got dropped. You know, they had had the big Ugh. record company party where, which I had gone to in a couple of cases and thought, mm, they're only listening to the first song and now they've started chatting amongst themselves. And then, then actually some of these people just got dropped. So they, they had all the touring support and everything for the big launch and then
1: they, they just were dropped. So Man, that would just be so devastating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. So, you know, since 2000 and since you started just really building your career and you, you've, you've done a lot, you've performed a lot of places, what over this time has been the most mind blowing thing that's happened to you that you've thought like, wow, I pinched me like how can I really be here? Is this really happening? Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, that's also a great question. I, I would say three things. The first thing that comes to mind to me is that I'm a really big radio fan and people who've spent time here will know that we're really lucky with our with our BBC radio stations and BBC Radio 4 and, and Radio 2 stations that I listen to a lot. Some There are some really long-running programs which are kind of talk shows where they have a bit of music as well. And so when I actually went on those shows that I'd listened to through my growing up, I was just so excited. I just, you know, I really couldn't believe my luck. And Mm. um, when I go to do anything at the BBC, I get a huge thrill because there's some really fantastic people that work there and it's a very nice environment. And uh, so that was, that's, I think, doing live sessions and interviews on and live on BBC National Radio. That's been fantastic. And the other thing, um, which is similar, but in a kind of playing situation is I, I did some touring supporting Roger McGuinn of The Birds, which came through a promoter who I really persistently <laughs> managed to get in touch with. And I did that two years in a row, and he was just solo. And at one point, we were sharing, it sounds really weird, we were sharing a dressing room that was only divided by a curtain because it's in a <laughs> really quaint kind of old building. And he was there practicing all of his intros, guitar intros, to things like Turn, Turn, Turn and Tambourine Man. And I was on the other side putting on my mascara and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, the birds and Roger McGuinn, that was, that was a real highlight to do that touring with him. I think an ongoingly, I'm very, very lucky to work with incredible musicians and they are all jazz players who then can turn their hand to any kind of music. And every time I'm playing with, with my band, I just think I can't believe it. I feel like I'm a female James Taylor. I just feel like mm. it doesn't get better than this. So all of those things really i I feel very lucky to have done those things
1: i love that you mentioned something in a lot of different areas that's really awesome and i have to say i was reading your bio and i was like what she played with paul carrick did you did you tour with him all i did a very I love paul carrick
0: he's he's amazing and he's a really nice man too as is roger mcguinn and i i was just touring solo um doing these gigs so it's kind of quite lonely but everybody. very nice to me and and that was a very different kind of crowd and a very different experience and but just a brilliant
1: experience Mm, how fun so you know during this time that you've been doing all this touring you had a daughter obviously you said you have a 13 year old daughter and I was noticing that because mine's mine just turned 15 like the other day so she was born in 2003 and I was like yeah I can totally get the trajectory of what that's like for you um and how did you How do you balance that? Like, how do you balance the touring? And did you used to take her with you and that kind of thing when she was younger? Um, I I did. I mean, in very first gigs, you just have to have
0: someone in the audience to kind of hold her. (laughs) I remember another singer-songwriter friend of mine came along, and I remember seeing her balancing her on her knee and then kind of sort of wiggling her up and down to entertain her while I was playing. And that felt so amazing to have her there. Then it went into the next phase, which you maybe also have experienced, which is somebody shouting, "Mummy, Mummy, stop singing!" and kind of coming onto the stage and grabbing your leg. Oh um, my gosh, <laughs> so good! Um, and then she had to be sort of taken away with ice creams by my brother. I remember that time. And then uh, my mother-in-law was really fantastic, so I remember ringing her one time. She or she rang and said, "How's it going?" And I said that I couldn't manage to do this gig because it'd be involved being away for too many hours. And she said. Bring them back and say you can do it and we'll make it work. And I'm forever grateful to her for that. Mm-hmm. And then he would also come and do babysitting. And uh, my mom as well, who sadly can't really do that nowadays, but um my my mother-in-law and my mom. And then for things that were nearby, I had a succession of of babysitters who at that time there were lots of people coming from Eastern Europe to work in London. They were very highly qualified young women, but they were all working as nannies, and I met them through the through the local play group and so i just had a whole stack on my phone which started off babysitter and then their name so i just put in b for babysitter and they all came up <laughs> and then i would just text my way through them saying i've got this gig are you free and that's how i did it and but funnily enough i don't know what you find but when my daughter was very young it was kind of easy because she was sort of asleep at night but um now she's older i feel like i need to be around more so i feel like i'm more a pu- unless I go away to do some gigs, it's, it's now we have teenagers who come and babysit, and then it's quite cool for her to hang out with these nice teen- older teenagers. But so it's just changed as time's gone on how I've managed it.
1: But yeah, and I think it's different for you because your husband probably often plays with you. Whereas for me, like I could leave my daughter home with my husband if I needed to. But in the early days, you know, I brought her on tour with me and I would bring my mom with me to watch her and, and kind of just be tour support
0: that's great yes well I never did that I've never done that but we've either gone over the last few years since I've just been older we've gone on some amazing trips abroad in France and in Greece particularly and she's hung out while we've done the concerts I think that that is getting quite boring for her now (laughs) but she did she has also played on some of our gigs at Glastonbury Festival she played the violin on a tune and she did that in France as well and sometimes she's really enjoyed that other times she doesn't want to do that and that's completely fair enough but um yeah it's 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 changed and uh I think the main thing was that I just that conversation with my mother-in-law I think was a turning point where she just you know said we'll work it out and I decided from that point that if there was something I wanted to do and I and I could I would do it Mm. otherwise I would just say no to everything
1: right Right. I know it's, yeah, it's so hard to know, like, yeah. are you going to be able to make this work out in the background? So that's good that you could have that, that fallback plan.
0: Yeah. And so it was, it was the attitude of mind, I think, I mean, the attitude of mind that yes. you, you think I either give up doing this or I just say, I'm going to find a way to work, work it out on a, on an, every single base, every single situation is different. Mm. And I just think, well, okay, what do I need to do in this situation? And then just do that.
1: So what are your favorite gigs to book? I know you you play a lot of festivals, you know, you play a lot of different kinds of venues. What are your favorite kinds of gigs?
0: Well, I think um, the favorite ones are the ones that I've played for quite a long time where it's kind of a repeat booking mm. and you, there's not the stress of trying to understand the booking person or which can be sometimes difficult as people will know. And so you've built up a, a relationship sometimes over many, many years with with that uh, uh, venue owner or manager and and it's just a pleasure to to deal with them and then you feel relaxed when you go to do the gig so the jazz club in london called the 606 and then there's a really lovely acoustic venue here called the green note and which is in, which is owned by women and i love hmm. i love dealing with them and also the 606 steve ruby he's run the club for 40 years and it's just you know there's just an ease an ease of dealing with the people once you
1: know them and do you do your own bookings? I do,
0: yes. The, the, when I did the support tours for, for Roger McGuinn and Paul Carrick and a few other people through that promoter, that was great because you just got the sheet through.
1: and It's like, this is a tour, and that
0: was lovely. But otherwise, I, I do everything myself.
1: So I noticed that you play a lot of really cool-looking festivals, and I was just curious, like, do you have any secret sauce for getting in with these festivals? I think
0: that I don't, unfortunately. And what has happened, all the festivals that I've done have just been through following up a personal connection of some kind, whether it is somebody who's a lighting engineer or um, or actually the BBC uh, presenter in the beginning. I was on the show. I was on the show of Janice Long, who's a really, really lovely BBC presenter here, said, oh, have you been spending this was on air live on air have you been spending the whole summer doing festivals and i said well actually no i've been sitting on windy beaches with my daughter (laughs) and uh, then afterwards i said i hadn't really broken into the festivals and she's she immediately gave me connections with two festivals she was involved with and then i did those festivals after quite a lot of persistence in one case i have to say Mm -hmm. but um that was just an introduction and i i think that in my experience, it's been really difficult to cold call festivals. It's always been through having some connection, or maybe my husband's playing there, and then I say I'm going to be there anyway. And is there a stage I can play? That sort of thing.
1: Mm, yeah, and I think true. Like once you get a few festivals under your belt and you can have those in your bio, it makes it easier too, right? Exactly.
0: I always think with everything with booking gigs in general, it's it's like pressing the buttons. So you either you email or you call, which I do quite a lot these days because everyone's got so many emails. And you just, in within your first sentence, you can just say, I've done this, this, and this. And then people will take you seriously. But till you get to that point, it's it's quite difficult, but you just need to start collecting those buttons that you can mention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Credibility markers are so important when you're communicating with people that are like decision makers and stuff because they, they don't want to waste their time on somebody that they don't know has actually done something that, you know, makes them worthy of their time. So, I mean, unfortunately, I hate to that's say right. that, but it does yeah. tend to be true. It's
0: true. It's true. And I, I think the other thing that's really great is if you if you collect, you can collect some quotes from people who mm. have some kind of influence um, and press, press quotes and media all, all of that, then it's then people go immediately, oh, oh, they said that, you know, that you must be good. It's a shame that people can't just even take a moment to listen to some music and then decide that they think it's good. I think people need their taste to be backed up by someone else saying they think it's good too.
1: Something. I think that's true. And I, and it it's true that people are just so busy. I mean, I can identify with that too. Yes. Like, you know, if someone sends me somebody for this show, I'm going to need to see a few things in that email that make me want to take the next step. Yes. Just because you get, you get so many emails. So it, it, it makes complete sense. And it, it is just kind of part of the trappings of the, the business and the world that we're, we're in being so inundated. I mean, and, and part of that is because there's so much access now, like with, with email and things, like there's more access to things than you would normally get in the old days. But that comes with a, you know, it's a double-edged sword.
0: Yeah, and I think on that note, I I have gone, when I just mentioned briefly, that I quite often call people on the telephone. And I also, I started out always sending people postcards and then people, and I, I even started making things out of folded tracing paper, which I'd <laughs> like to do. And I used to sit and stuff huge, envelope, you know, 100, 100 envelopes full of stuff that I would then send to the press and so on. And at one point, a few years ago, somebody who, who was on the receiving end of those he became my facebook friend he's a journalist and he said oh i remember your little tracing paper things that you sent so if you can make it somehow personal as well i think that really helps and in in this day when everybody's got so many emails if you can kind of make a personal connection that's i'm go, i've gone back to that
1: yeah yeah it's kind of like we're coming full circle now in the, in the days of the internet and speaking of that you know communicating with people online how do you like to communicate with your fans and engage with your fans where do you find is the best place to you know get new fans and engage with the ones that you have
0: well I'm I think I'm quite old-fashioned and I'm not as brilliantly technical as you and I'm (laughs) learning stuff as I go I I do Facebook my Facebook profile is open I have a musician page but I have another page which is just which I mainly do and it's it's not a a private Facebook so if people kind of come to shows In in other countries, particularly, I've had people then get in touch with me on Facebook and keep in touch that way. I have a, I think a really nice thing and a very long lasting thing is to have your emailing list, which is Mm -hmm. your kind of gold dust, which you mustn't ever lose. And so I'm very old fashioned. I have a, I have a folder and I've written down by hand all of the emailing lists, all emailing addresses of my people on my mailing list just in case
1: by hand oh my gosh okay well usually so take a picture of that with your phone just in case like a fire happens or something I know
0: I know well I, I mean I do mail I do MailChimp and um but everyone when I add them on I also write them into my folder which is on a shelf and so it it's it's kind of some of those people have been on my mailing list since the whole thing was possible and some of them have unsubscribed but not not that many um uh, so i think I find a really nice personal way to maintain contact with people and telling them what you're doing and and the other thing that i'm trying to build up is a, a youtube channel which is a mm. bit in fledgling stages but i can see from other colleagues um, particularly my friend and colleague mean mary which is the reason that i spotted your what you do is because she followed it i can she's had great success by doing videos and I think that is a very good way forward
1: well I love that you're focused on the email list because I do think that that's so important and I find that a lot of artists have a really big block when it comes to that because they just want to do social media and they feel like the email list is somehow this like 100 pound gorilla that they can't tackle for some reason but luckily and I think you're like me in this way like you started it a long time ago and I started mine you know way back in whatever it was, 2006, when I first came out with my album. And that was what you did back then because there was no social media yet. And it's still a thing. And, and so you've built it all this time. Do you find that when you come out with a new album, that people that are on your email list are like ready and waiting to buy it?
0: Yeah, there are some people who are amazing and they buy about 10 and give them to their mm. friends. And I feel like, you know, they then I give them a free copy as well. Then there are other people who, yeah. Then they'll go to the digital format So on the website now, we have everything that you can, so you can download everything from the website, and it, it's it's available in kind of high quality and and just MP3s as well. So everything's there that people can buy in every different format. And then I, I did embrace Spotify fully this actually last year because I was kind of holding back, thinking I'm going to leave it so that people can buy the music for a while after the new album. And then, then I thought, actually, this is just the way that everyone's doing it. So I've had to embrace that. But I, I do, I do, if I send out an emailing um, letter, which I don't do that often, I do always get really nice responses and replies from lots of people. So I I think it's having it and not overusing it maybe is a good idea.
1: Mm. Well, I always ask this question for Um, pretty much everybody that comes on this show about streams of income, because I think that it's really important as a musician these days to have several different streams. And I know you've talked about doing teaching. What, What do you think, how do you think your streams of income break down as far as like money that comes in from live shows, sales, merch, you know, any kind of maybe licensing that you get and then like your teaching? yeah
0: well at the moment I, it is mainly teaching because i'm kind of more home based at the mm-hmm. moment um and then when i do an album it, it's changed a lot you know because it used to be that you would sell a lot of physical copies but it's it's not with spotify it has made a huge difference to income from selling the music record, mm-hmm. which is a shame um i think something's got to shift on that basis somehow and i hope it does um but so so i would say at the moment that the money from the recorded music is quite is quite minimal but then when you do a run of gigs then you can sell quite a few cds on gigs and that really remains a place to 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 sell to sell the physical music i think um i sort of thought that i would sell more downloads than i do and i don't sell very many downloads it's mainly more physical cds um and then the gig fee. And because I'm married to a professional session musician, I have steered away from doing gigs that don't pay anything or, or very little. Just if I possibly can help it, unless I think that something is really worthwhile and it's going to maybe lead on to other things or I just want to do it. But I always try to get a decent a decent gig fee as well. And I think that kind of makes people think of you in a different way as as well,
1: but it does, the, and I think we need yeah. to think of ourselves in a different way. You know, once I once I had kids, and it's like again, like you have to get babysitters and your time away from your kids. Like you have to value that. And I would just say to people, like I don't go anywhere, even if it's down the street for less than a hundred dollars.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was exactly. just
1: a mindset shift, you know. And then they have to accept it. Like here, you know, here are the reasons why, and it's take it or leave it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think because I started out in the London jazz scene, which is is quite well paid and and the people are that like session players and jazz players and so they if you want to work with good people they want to be paid properly otherwise they'll have to say look I'm really sorry because another gig has come in right because they're so busy some of these people including my husband you know he's he's kind of um you know kicked himself off some of my gigs sometimes (laughs) because which is kind of annoying
1: that's hilarious (laughs) (laughs) I love it
0: you know you're just like I'm really sorry but I absolutely have to do that other thing sometimes I think yes that's fair enough and other times I've been annoyed but um, <laughs> it's it's uh I think you just start I've started with that mindset that you should get paid um and so yeah so I, I try to get you know in, in in London it's it's you know you can get It just it varies so much from from you know under 100 pounds to 200 pounds it just depends what you're doing so much and then the singer songwriter venues don't don't pay so well but it's it's just trying to make it like a a kind of patchwork quilt of yep. your life work really
1: yeah that's the way i think about income streams is like a patchwork quilt of of all the things that you need to put together to build a life as a musician which is why i always ask that question because i think it's really it's really interesting um as far as you you building yourself you know from the beginning And, you know, kind of having this learning curve of like, I don't have a record label or anyone behind me. Were there any resources that helped you along the way, whether they were books or online resources, um, you know, courses or anything that you took that helped you with the marketing side, the songwriting side, or even like kind of the self-development that you needed to have the mindset to be able to do that yourself that you can recommend?
0: Well, there was a book that was called something like all You Need to Know About the Music Business. Oh,
1: yes. So many people mentioned that one. A very big
0: fat book. And I did read all of that, and I got very confused by lots of things. Um, <laughs> I can't even remember what they called like, recouping advances and all that sort of stuff. And I, so and then it became not very relevant to me. I think I remember going, there's a thing called, the, called BASCA here, the British Association of Songwriters, Composers, and Authors, which is a very good organization. I was a member of that, and I went to a couple of seminars there, I remember. So in anyone, wherever anyone is, there will be an organization like that that will have music business-type seminars. And I think from reading all of those things, when we decided to do it ourselves, we just thought, right, we're going to do it like the big boys do. We're going to set up, set up a label. And then from that point, the collecting agencies, so the PRS in this country and the MCPS, are extremely helpful, and they will really give you loads of advice about everything you need to do and things like you know you have to have an I think it's called an IRFC could always get the initials wrong um so that you can identify your tracks so if they get played on the radio then all yes the money comes to you and things like realizing that as a person who has a label and is the artist and is a songwriter I have you know we we all have three streams of income we have it as a performer singer we have it as a songwriter at the publishing and we also have it as a record company holder so when Something gets played on the radio. I get paid three times.
1: Mm. And just
0: being aware of things like that, but all of those collecting agencies will will help you, and they'll spend a lot of time with you. And I had had a lot of calls where I've rung up and said, "I just don't understand. Can mm. <laughs> you explain it to me again?" And they and they're really really nice. So I would say that just has been very helpful, and just talking to other people who've who've done it. But but trying to trying to do things in the model of the industry just doing it exactly how you want to do it.
1: Yeah. I like that. Just modeling what other maybe labels or indie labels are doing, but you're doing it yourself. Yeah. And I do think that just having a resource of somebody that's a little bit further ahead than you are is always like a gold mine. Yeah.
0: And sometimes now people ring me up, you know, I've maybe met some people that my husband's worked with or met someone at a party and they said, do you mind if I give you a call and just ask you how i need to do this or and it's it's really nice
1: to be able to pass that on as well absolutely well this has all been super helpful can you let our listeners know how they can find you online and connect with you
0: yes i would love that um i've got a website which is www.rebeccaholveg.com and you can well, spell that
1: for them too just yes. in case they're listening
0: so it's rebecca r e b e c c a holweg h-o-l-l-w-e-g dot com and there's no nothing no dot in between or anything there's a button on there where you can join my mailing list there's also a way to email directly through that my facebook is just rebecca holweg but it's a w pronounced like a like a v um i'm on twitter as well although i don't do much on twitter so those are basically the the ways that they can be in touch and i would love to be in touch It would be a thrill
1: perfect. And if you go to London, you got to go find her and see where she's playing because I you, I have heard her music and it's fantastic. So, you guys should check her out live. Thank you so much, Rebecca. This has been really, really helpful. I love getting to see kind of your story of starting from from nothing back in the days when you finally when you realized that you weren't going to get any kind of a record deal and just saying, "Hey, we're going to do it ourselves." It's really inspiring to all the artists that are listening. So I really appreciate us, you taking us through that journey.
0: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me. And it's great to see, think of other people in different countries across the pond, as we say, um, <laughs> same journey. So good luck, everybody. Just keep going.
1: Now go out and make great music, connect with your fans and grow your business. Female Entrepreneur Musician has been brought to you by femusician.com and femalemusicianacademy.com with editing by Jen Eads of 317 Sound Design and music by Stella Ronson.